Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's installment of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, Max Groene shares some important lessons with us about God's invitation to the Israelites to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So open your Bibles to Exodus 19 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. So this morning, we are going to be going through more of Exodus. We're going to be looking at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to jump to the end of the chapter, which is verses 16 through 20. I must warn you, um, last week we got to see bread falling from the sky. Very awesome. Next week, we're going to hear from the Ten Commandments. Super great. The text I got assigned, we're just going to be camping in front of a mountain. So (laughs) buckle up, boys. So let's read this text together. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9, and then 16 through 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out of Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. On the mountain of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So our general layout of the text is going to be, we're going to look at some geography as always. Um, My worst subject, but you seem to love it, so we'll go through it. Um, And then there's some background information at the beginning And then we see this kind of uh, reasoning that God gives the people of Israel of why they were rescued. So those first few verses really say that God has rescued them, therefore we obey or they obey. And then at those last verses, we see that God descends upon a mountain. And then lastly, that Moses ascends. Very clear here. We see Egypt. We see the promised land. And we see where they are right now at Mount Sinai. Now, a little information about Mount Sinai is there are actually apparently a a few different 
mountains in that region, and people sometimes like to debate which mountain it was that they went up. In the commentary I was reading, it almost literally said, who cares? It doesn't matter which of these three mountains they went up. They were right here at this time. So I'm not going to give an opinion on which one of the mountaintops they climbed. Um, so getting into this, I want to say that there's something that I really admire in pastors that have a lot more experience in preaching than I do. One of the things that I've seen a lot of great pastors be able to do is they just seem to be able to reference theologians or Christian authors seemingly at will, and they can keep everything straight in their minds of who said what and who is responsible for what kind of theological statements. And I'll be honest, my memory is not that great, but I'm going to give it a try. So I'm going to reference one of my favorite Christian authors today, Tolkien from Lord of the Rings. So as I was reading the text, there was something that really stuck out to me. And if you know Lord of the Rings, you'll realize why it stuck out to me. Is In one of the verses, it says, uh, um, right here, yes, and he says, How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, in verse 4. So there are two points in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf summons these giant eagles to come and grab the fellowship and rescue them. And if you're like me, you sat there and you realized, why is, why is there four more hours of this movie from them to get from one location to another when they could have just ridden these eagles? It just makes no sense. I was, I was looking it up and I was like, certainly there's a better reason. And this is what I read from some Lord of the Rings blog. It says, that is, if Gandalf can ask a moth to bring him a giant eagle to rescue him from Sorum in the Fellowship of the Ring or pick Sam and Frodo up from the lava fields of Mount Doom in the return of the king, why wouldn't he just summon the giant eagles to carry the one ring to Mordor itself, shortening the ring quest by months or for us, hours? In the same way, God is telling the Israelites, I bore you on the wings of an eagle. And I'm thinking, they've been starving in the desert grumbling for manna, grumbling and waiting for food. Now they're camping in front of a mountain. God, why didn't you just bring them all the way to that promised land? Why did you not get them all the way there? It feels very much like Lord of the Rings. They could have gone all the way, yet they only rode the eagle's wings for a very short period of time. But I think we all know the answer why God didn't bring them all the way to Canaan, because he had lessons for them in the wilderness. God had lessons for them in the wilderness, and God has lessons for us from that journey in the wilderness as well. And so we get into our text, and we see that, um, as I joked about Exodus 19 being a little less adventure-filled, uh, I do believe that it's a, it, it is a great chapter of setup. And we can see that very clearly in, in our journey with the men's breakfast. We've seen them be rescued from Egypt, the Israelites have wandered a little bit. They've grumbled a lot a bit. Um, they've been moving, and now they're camping. And then next week, we get the Ten Commandments, which is great. And then we go into a long period of instruction and teaching the Israelites how to live. And so we're stuck in this little in-between phase right now, which I love. They're not moving. They're not really learning about the Ten Commandments or how to live this holy life. 
they're waiting. They're taking a pause, a reprieve from wandering. They're not, they're not following smoke or fire yet. They're not, you know, walking barefoot or whatever. They're just sitting there waiting. And I feel like in this moment, God just says, like, to quiet down. Just stop walking. Quiet down. Listen, because I have lessons for you in this wilderness. And those lessons, I think, are going to be giving the Israelites the reason that they've been saved. We see very clearly in this text that God has a lot of reasons that they've been saved. And I think one of the big problems that we've seen is in this grumbling that Hunter talked about last week. The Israelites forgot that they had been saved for a reason. And they thought they had been saved from Egypt to live however they wanted to live. And it led to a lot of grumbling. And so we see that there are many different reasons that the Israelites are saved. They're saved to serve and worship God. They're saved to be a treasured possession. And they're saved to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we're going to start with this saved to serve and worship God. And if we want to understand this, we have to actually move a lot bef- way earlier in Exodus before our text today. So I'm going to need some participation here. Moses is really famous for saying one line to Pharaoh. What is it? Let my people go. And we all remember this part that says, let my people go. But I feel like we often forget the line that is always, always tagged on with that, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh, let my people go. We got that. That they may serve me. That they may serve me. You see, salvation is for a reason. The Israelites were not saved from Egypt to be able to do whatever they wanted. They were saved from Egypt to worship and serve God. The Hebrew word for for serve here is abad, which is to work or to serve or to worship. And so I think that what we get in, we get in, we so get in the uh, habit of quoting this first portion of the line which just let my people go. We focus on the freedom, but not for the reason for the freedom. And I think that's what led to the Israelites grumbling for so long is they thought that they were freed to be able to eat more than they had. And so they were angry and reminisced about all the food they had in Egypt. They thought that they were freed in order to just live however they wanted. So as we move forward in the wilderness, we'll see them grumbling again and again and turning away from God because they forgot that they were freed to worship God. They were freed to serve God, to work for him, not just to live however they wanted. And so when we take a moment and we pause, when we stand still and camp out at the foot of the mountain and we stop moving around as much, we stop talking and we give a moment to listen, we see that we also are saved for many reasons. We also are saved from our sin for many reasons because God is asking us to worship him and to serve him and for our work to be a way of worship, for the the things that we do with our lives to be a way of serving God. Not all of us are in vocational ministry, thank goodness, because this city would stop running. Um, 
But the things that you do, the career that you feel called for, can be your way to serve and to worship God because they all run together. And so as we reflect on the Israelites being worshipped, we remember that they were saved to serve God. And we also have been saved to serve God. The next reason that we see that the Israelites have been saved from the beginning of Exodus 19 is to be a treasured possession, it says, which is a little bit of a confusing terminology for me to think through. What does it mean to be a treasured possession? And so if I think of what it means to be a treasured possession, I think of uh, the creation of humanity. And so Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Men and women were created different, different than all the animals, which never had the breath of God into their nostrils, giving them life. So we see that from the very creation of humanity, we're treasured. From the very creation of humanity, there's something different about us. We're made in God's image. But the problem with this is that we've watched it be ruptured as well. Not that we're image bearers, but the communion we had with God, how treasured we are to God was ruptured in sin, and it separated us, it separated it, us from Him. We see in Genesis 12, as we move along, this calling of Abraham. One of the things I noticed about uh, verse 19, or chapter 19, when he says, a treasured possession in verse 5, he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for, for all the earth is mine. And so this treasured possession of Israel, it's being chosen out of all the people. This treasured possession of humanity is chosen out of everything on earth. So out of everything on earth, humans were made in God's image. And out of all the humans, Israel was chosen to be this treasured possession. And we see that promise all the way back in the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, which says, I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor you. And, and the, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What was Abraham chosen for? To be a treasured possession. And what did that entail? It entailed to be blessed by God and to bless others for God. That is what it means to be a treasured possession. And so here we see that God is rescuing Israel to be treasured. Out of all the people around them, Israel is chosen to be this, this treasured possession of God and to share that with others. And so as we move on, and soon we'll look at the kingdom of priests and the holy nation, and one of the things that I think is worth remembering is that when, when Israel left Egypt, they didn't leave alone. When Israel left Egypt, a ton of the Egyptians chose to go with them. And I love that. Right now in, in Tribe Fellowship, the Chapels College Ministry, we're looking at Ruth together. And we studied Ruth 1 this week, and we looked at earlier in Scripture, in, in the segments of Scripture that we'll talk about over men's, the series of Men's Breakfast, that the Moabites were cursed people. God said that the Moabites were not to enter into this, this group of Israelites. Yet we have Ruth, a Moabite who did enter the people of Israel. 
And not only was she allowed to enter the people of Israel, she's in the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus Christ and King David came from Ruth's blood. And so we see that this treasured people, it's expansive. It's not cut off. It's not just for us. It's not just for us in this room who say, I've given my life to Christ. I'm a, I am a treasured possession made in his image. Because even when sin separates us from God, it doesn't take away the part of us that's still an image bearer. It doesn't take away the part of humanity that has God's breath within us. And so we see that humans from the start were a treasured possession. And then we see that Abraham and Israel becomes a treasured possession even among humans to be God's treasured people. And so we move on to see that Israel are saved from Egypt to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When I think of a priest, I think of a lot of different things. But when it comes down to it, a priest is somebody who has access to God and represents God. And how can we see that in Israel? We see it very clearly in Exodus 19 as God literally descends in a cloud, in fire, to speak with them. But what we see in Israel is when they have access to God, it's through the way that he tells them to live. He tells them to serve him and worship him, um, to work for him. And it comes with all of these almost rules or regulations, which are just standards of living, helping them understand how to navigate life, surrounded by people who are doing a lot of different things. And so when we look at uh, what it means to have access to God, it's easy for, to look at the Israelites and say they have clear access to God through Moses right now and through the sacrificial systems that's going to be given to them. Um, as we study the Ten Commandments, that's straight up from God, and that's a way that they have access to him. How do we have access to God? Is through Jesus Christ. When sin separated us, death was the consequence. Death has been taken from us and put on Jesus that we may have unrestricted access to our Father in heaven and that we are to represent God. That's that part of the treasured possession that says to be a blessing to the nations. That's that same aspect that talks about um, the Egyptians joining in on Israel, Ruth the Moabite joining in on Israel. Israelites are to represent God to the, to the neighboring nations. In seminary, I had a professor who loved studying um, the ancient Near East. We spent a lot of time trying to understand these things called ancient Hittite treaties, which I maybe understand like 40% of what I was supposed to learn. It was really difficult. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in that class was understanding the culture of the time. And so we see through all of Exodus and, the, and all of the Old Testament, there are all these different groups of people. They're all worshiping different gods. But part of the culture of the time is that depending on how strong a group of people were, that must mean their God is really strong. If Egypt is really strong, they must have really strong gods. And so that's the culture that the Israelites were living in. And so as we understand them navigating through and at war with these other groups of people, we would realize that the more Israel was able to triumph, the more people thought, wow, Yahweh's incredible. Yahweh's a really strong God. I want to be a part of that. And so that's part of the way that they were able to represent God. The other way is they were called to be a holy nation. They were called to be set apart from the people. 
And so this is kind of foreshadowing everything that we're going to see next week and the weeks after that as we learn about how the Israelites have been called to act and called to live. What does holy mean? It means set apart. God is a holy God. He's set apart, set apart from sin and all the junk that we have. And so the Israelites have also been called to be set apart. As I think about this, I mean, again, we see the Israelites surrounded by different cultures, surrounded by a lot of cultures of sin, and they've been set apart. And that might sound a little familiar to us as we look at the culture that we are living in. I hope that we're set apart from that as well. And so we see that all of these reasons that Israelites were told to stop, settle down, listen, you weren't saved to wander. You weren't saved to go hungry. You weren't saved to grumble. You weren't saved to serve yourself. You were saved for all these reasons. We also are saved for these same reasons. If we look at Romans 9, 8, it says this. This means that it is, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It is not whether or not you are an Israelite that dictates whether these promises apply to you. It is whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ, whether these promises apply to you. And if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you too are called to be uh, set apart and a holy nation. And you too are called a treasured possession. As we Move on, we see in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We too have a calling to be a kingdom of priests. We too have a calling to be a holy nation and a people belonging to God. It's a promise that belonged to Israel, and it's a promise that belongs to us as well. And so we're going to move on to the rest of Exodus 19, uh, which should give us a lot of hope, because it is hard. It is hard to work and serve and worship God sometimes. It is hard to view ourselves and remember that we are treasured possessions. It is hard to be a kingdom of priests be a holy nation, it's really difficult to set yourself apart from the culture we live in. But there is good news because we are not called to do any of these things without God first descending. And so we look at the end of of this chapter of Exodus and we see in, in verses 16 and 17, this kind of setup that they leave their encampment, because they hear something happening on Mount Sinai, one of those few mountains at least. They hear it, and they go, and they want to be present for that. And then we see it, that God descends in verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses did not climb the mountain before God first had descended. And I hope that this is ringing bells in your head as we can think of other ways that we've seen God descend. In John 6, 38, 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ also came down from heaven to rescue us first. He rescued us first before we're asked to work and serve and worship him. Before we're asked to view ourselves as a treasured possession. Before we are called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God comes down. And I'm really excited. I know that some of us may go to different churches, but I've been listening to a lot of preaching at the chapel where I work. And we're going through an awesome series right now. And right now we're studying Acts. And I think through last week's sermon about the the disciples and the apostles were all gathered as God ascends to heaven, but he tells them, don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, why not? Why couldn't they leave and just go spread the word? I think that if there were 11 people 11 people capable of sharing the gospel, it would probably be the 11 disciples that were left. They're the only ones that walked with Jesus for years, lived with Jesus, watched everything he said and taught and did. I feel like they're the ones that are equipped to go and be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But Jesus said, not yet. Why? Because it wasn't enough the Holy Spirit had to descend as well. And so in Acts 16, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For, I do not, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Send him from where? From heaven. The Spirit descends as well. And so we see that all of these reasons that we've been saved, they're great reasons but they're hard reasons. It's hard to be set apart. It's hard to live a holy life. But that's why God first descends. And so we see that salvation is for a reason. We see that, um, let's see where I'm. So before we serve him, he saves us. And before we can go up to meet God, he comes down because we can't go up on our own. And so as we try to share the gospel and witness, as we've been talking about a lot too, as we try to be this kingdom of priests, as we try to live a life that looks different, we feel encouraged. We feel encouraged that God descends for us, that God descended in Jesus Christ, that God descends with the Holy Spirit, and that for the Israelites, God descended on Mount Sinai to speak with them, to meet with them, and guide them. I love um, the annual focus of the chapel right now, which is talking about what the church is, that what God's church is. And what we've come down on is that God's church, that the church is God's family on God's mission. And the Israelites were on God's mission as well. And before they could go on that mission, they had to realize that they were saved for a reason and that God descended to help them with that mission. And so the same is true for us, that God descends, that we may be his treasured people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.